Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 49. 49 and feeling fine. <laughs> Are, Are we? Really? Are we? <laughs> Jen, we said we would never lie to the people. I know. I think like, I, ha- I had kind of have a headache. <laughs> I'm a little tired. Kind of thirsty. <laughs> but doing fine. How are but you? Fine. I'm fine. Um, I'm doing all right. Um, you know what we haven't talked about? What? Is our second Dumb Love comedy show. Oh, man. We had such a good time. It was such a good time. We really, really had fun. Thank you all who tuned in and who donated. You guys were so much fun. You were amazingly generous. And all the comics were hilarious. Oh, my God. They were so funny. I was yeah. I've been thinking about um Sarah Tolomash's joke about how she keeps accidentally making pizza during the quarantine. I've been thinking <laughs> about that so nonstop. Funny. And I every day I'm like, oh my God, I keep accidentally making pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should check her out. She's hilarious. Yeah, um, she's so sneaky funny. I yeah. love her. I love yeah. her. All right, should we get to our quickies? Um, yeah, let's do it. Okay. I I'm starting this week. Ooh, kick it off. <sighs> Man. I have a good one. Uh, it is good. My quickie comes from a very important article written for Metro UK, written by um, Jessica Lindsay. And I'm so glad that she wrote uh-huh. this article because I have been wanting to know, and I'm sure all of you guys have been wanting to know. Everybody wants to know like how our family's doing during the quarantine, how our mm-hmm. nurses doing during the quarantine teachers, but nobody yet has spoken about what are serial cheaters doing (laughs) to get through the quarantine. It's so important. Thank God she wrote this article because, um, and thank you, Robert, who's 44 years old from Chipping Camden, Gloucestershire, um, Uh for telling your story. Um, Thank you, Robert. Okay, Robert is, he works in the city and is married with three teenage children. And he is also a serial cheater. Sounds um, like a cool dad. Yes. he. But he's been using the website Illicit Encounters to find partners to have sex with and making these affairs work remotely despite the lockdown measures. You know, people, um, people will really surprise you. You know, they will come up with inventive ways <laughs> – to do anything. People are just amazing. Ingenuity. Mm-hmm, and that's it's the word I was looking for. Um, <laughs> Robert's first experience with infidelity began five years ago when he bought an additional apartment, flat as they say, in, in addition to his family home in London so that he could be closer to his work and avoid a long commute. So because uh-huh. he was staying there three times a week, he decided that he should probably start cheating on his wife. <laughs> Um, he well, said it after only makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he has this whole apartment to himself. He met a married woman at a private members club, and they began having um, sex together after going to the gym or out for drinks. And then their affair fizzled out because the woman felt guilty. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
why, I, I don't know. Robert <laughs> said he just could not go back to monogamy and he needed to meet somewhere new. It was there that he found this website, Illicit Account Encounters, which enabled him to keep two affairs going on at any point time, at least two affairs. So he says that the reason that he has these affairs is purely sexual. He made the mistake of marrying his childhood sweetheart and the first girl he had ever slept with. He said they've been dating since they were 15 and stayed together the whole time and he wanted to have sex with other people. I still love that. It sounds like to me that maybe it's not, the mistake was not marrying her. It was just then not being honest with her. Yes. Motherfucker. Yes. Oh my. So that's the thing. It's like, I you think get she that. doesn't want to have sex with other people. Totally. Here's the thing. He said, um, well, let me get through how he's getting through okay, um, I'm sorry. the lockdown. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he's been meeting people through this website. And he said, for the most part, he's been um, keeping these dalliances digital. He said, have I broken the lockdown? Yes. Once in the early days with a married woman who was marooned on her own in London. But I do believe that social distancing is right. And I felt guilty about breaking the rules and I have not done it since. Well, bravo, Robert. Oh my gosh. I am bravo. you don't even see me. I am standing up. I am giving a <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> Good job. So, but he promises that he will start these affairs back up as soon as this hell is over. And he he can see that this lockdown will probably only last it three weeks or so. This was mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. you were wrong, Robert. Um, <laughs> and he said that he's refrained from FaceTime sex with them during the lockdown because he doesn't want to detract from the real thing when they were finally free. Look at the willpower on this guy. But he says that he wants to stay married. He doesn't think that his wife knows. And if she does, she keeps it to herself. And when they asked him if he feels guilty for cheating on his wife, he says, yes, unquestionably, I married too young without satisfying the sexual curiosity that lies within most of all of us. And then he said, I imagine I will grow out of this phase in time. But at the present, I'm having too much fun on illicit encounters to want to stop. And when they asked him... If well, how would he feel if the tables were turned? And mm-hmm. he replied, I'm not going to lie, I would be gutted, but it would be hypocritical of me to be censorious. I would only have to myself to blame. Okay. Well, look at we this get guy, you. You got, Robert. You know how to use big words. All right. <laughs> censorious. All right. I know. Oh my it's like just be honest. Like have Oh, have like a if, fucking hard conversation. Like, exactly. Hey, I want to have sex with other people. And you know what? Your wife might surprise you and be like, yeah, yeah let's see totally. what happens with our relationship. Let's open it up. We can stay married and have sex with other people. Or maybe she'll be like, no, that's not okay with me. Let's get divorced. And then you know what? You're free. Yeah, exactly. You just go get your own apartment. You just went and got your own apartment in London where you go three days a week and you don't think that your wife is sitting at I hope your wife is having sex with other people. Oh I, God, I hope, hope so. she is. That's a good thing to hope for, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just thought this article was so strange. You know, it was just like, oh, how is he coping? I know. And how did this even come to be? Like, they were like, you know who we haven't heard from? We haven't heard a thing from serial cheaters. (laughs) Get out out there there and and get me one. (laughs) (laughs) And don't come back until you find one. (laughs) Well, they found a good one. 
and his All name right. is Robert. Um, yeah, he's censorious. So, 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 so censorious. That's a good one. That was well, my quickie is about a couple that's a little bit more committed than yours. Okay. Yeah. So this is from an article on Alabama.com by Carol Robinson. Mm. And this is about an Alabama couple was taken to jail on March 28th after authorities say they were caught having sex in the police department parking lot. <laughs> what a great idea. How do you always find these idea. articles about people having sex, uh, getting arrested for having sex in weird places? Like, do you Google couple arrested for having sex in weird places and see where? I Google couple got caught. And then I, that's it. And then you can see what comes up. That's <laughs> always having sex. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's what, that's what came up. Oh, my God. Um, so the Brookside Police Department's Communication Center actually spotted the couple on their department security cameras. And do you want to take a guess at what time it was? I'm going to say lunchtime. It was 3.30 p.m. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were in a vehicle park just outside, so the officers didn't have to go far to go when they responded to the scene. Chief Mike Jones said that they identified the people in the vehicle as Paula Garner and James Sanders, both of Centerpoint, Alabama. And it turns out the reason they were there is because Paula was scheduled for a court order community service stemming from an earlier criminal case, and James Sanders was her ride there. So officers approached the vehicle and they noticed a strong odor of marijuana. Oh, I thought you were going to say meth. Oh, well, don't you worry. Just hang <laughs> um, So they brought the department's canine out and he positively alerted to the presence of illegal substances. And when they got inside the car, not only did they find the two having sex, they found crystal meth, of marijuana, did. drug paraphernalia, and a gun. So both James and Paula were charged with indecent exposure, possession of a controlled substance, and possession of drug paraphernalia, and James was charged with being in possession of a firearm. Their vehicle was impounded, and both suspects were walked to city jail. Chief Jones posted on Facebook, he said, the officers did a bang-up job on this case. (laughs) (laughs) They looked out the window. (laughs) They looked out the window in broad daylight and found a couple of methods. Are those people, are they, they're having sex. They're having sex. parking lot. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right outside at 3.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, community service is pretty sexy. So I do understand why they were like, you know, she got out of her community service and he was like, baby, you look like you're doing some good in the world. <laughs> and she was like, give me some of that meth. <laughs> and then some tea. Some meth, <laughs> then some tea. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, um, Alabama. So quickie. Alabama. Love that's it. My Alabama quickie. Alabama quickie. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a really crazy story? It's pretty crazy. I'm I'm pumped for this because you texted me earlier this week and said that your story was very crazy. And that's saying a lot given the stories we've told on this podcast. So I actually can't. I'm pretty pumped. I can't believe that I haven't heard this before. But this is coming from um, an episode of Scorned Love Kills. Um, 
<laughs> also, Killer Women with Piers Morgan. Uh-huh. Oh. And then an article for Mirror UK written by Steve Mile. This is pretty crazy. Okay. okay. So in 1992 in Houston, Texas, uh, lived a very, very wealthy oil man. Ooh. An oil man named Jimmy Jost. <laughs> Jimmy Jost. It's a really good rich oil man name. So he was a third generation oil man. So he had already inherited like a ton of money from his family. But he also invented this horizontal drilling technique. Have mm-hmm. you heard about it? Um, yeah, they call it the missionary. <laughs> Ooh, good one. <laughs> so he made a ton of money in his own right on this drilling technique. But he was so he was a super wealthy, like big man about town. He was very well known. Um, they said he had movie star good looks, but when I Googled him, he had good looks. Um, <laughs> he had rich oil man good I looks. I don't know about movie <laughs> you're star. Like, you're like, you're good looking because you have money. <laughs> a movie star could play him. <laughs> in a movie about his life. But he, w- he was um, apparently very charismatic and everyone was always drawn towards him. And uh, one night well, he was- It does go at- far. Personality goes a long way. It does. It does. I live my life by it. <laughs> right. I'm like, I've really banked my whole <laughs> being on that. <laughs> same, same. So Jimmy was out one night at a social event, you know, a rich person social event. When he, across the room, he spots 28-year-old Rhonda Glover. Now, she was strikingly beautiful, and she carried herself like a beauty queen because she was a beauty queen. She was oh. an ex-beauty pageant girl and a rodeo queen. What? Isn't that awesome? A rodeo but, queen. So do you think she rodeoed? Sorry. Do you think she rode? Rodeo? I don't know how rodeo don't know how you say queens that. work if you have to rodeo to be a queen or if it's kind of like you how you could be like Miss Georgia Peach. Oh, right. Like Miss Strawberry Festival in 1998. Miss Cornflower. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but she was a rodeo queen. Yeah, whatever you have to do to get that title. So, I mean, I imagine um, a lot. So, yeah, I'm impressed. So, he had actually seen her before on the 1990 Miss Texas Beauty Pageant on television. And when, when he saw her in 1990 on TV, he was already smitten with her. So, when he saw her across the room, he just completely made a beeline over to her. And they said that as soon as the two started talking, they were instantly inseparable. They just had such a rapport. They just were, you can't see it. I'm saying like doing like this with my fingers. Yeah. You have a circle and then one finger going in and out of that circle. No, the other, like, um, (laughs) (laughs) like fingers crossed. Okay. So because she grew up around rodeos, she was very familiar with Texas high society, but she didn't grow up in a rich background. She grew up in a a much more modest background. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy was actually 15 years older than her and, you know, was much more wealthy and older. So he liked to take care of her. Immediately, he became like her caretaker and he just wanted to help her in any way that he could. And he wanted to help her climb up the social ladder. So he kind of took, was just like, welcome to this world. And I'm going to show you how to be high society, you know? Um, And they apparently offer. Yeah. And they also apparently had a very passionate sex life. He had told Now are you doing the fingers? Yeah, now. <laughs> like, boy, oh, 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 oh. Uh, <laughs> the, 
had a very passionate, uh, now I'm making a humping motion. I'm pumping my arms and thrusting my pelvis in a humping motion in a very passionate sex life. Is that, that's what passionate sex looks like? (laughs) So he had told his friends that she was, quote unquote, the best sex he'd ever had. And Mm -hmm. one night when they were out, she actually met another woman and she was very adventurous sexually. So when she she had like met another woman and was flirting with her and then they brought her home and and then they ended up for a while, they all kind of three dated. They don't say who this woman was, but they said that there was a while where they would like go out and party together and they'd sleep together. And so of course, Jimmy was like, this is awesome. And, you know, and he wanted to do anything he could to keep her. So he gave her um, money. He gave her a $20,000 a month allowance. Isn't that crazy? Um, He bought her about four or five cars. He bought her homes. He bought her a boat. He bought her a house. And then at one point, he even wrote her a check for a million dollars just to use as spending money. Isn't that insane? Dang. Yeah. Rhonda... I know somebody's going to die, but I'm so jealous right now. Yeah, dude. (laughs) Uh, So Rhonda, of course, was all about all of those things, the cars and the money and the whatever. But she really wasn't that much into Jimmy after Uh a while. And, of course, she started cheating on him. And apparently she was not discreet about it at all. Like all of Houston knew about it and Jimmy knew about it, but he didn't want to let her go. And he obviously hated the cheating, but he put up with it in order to keep her. And their relationship became very tumultuous. She liked the status and the money, and she didn't like how he was obsessed with her. He became totally obsessed with her. And over time, the affair started to wear on him, and he started to kind of go crazy a little bit. And one night when he knew she was out with another man, he drove over to this man's house, and he scaled the walls, and he broke in to the house and found and busted in on them in bed together. And apparently while he was scaling the walls, he had cut up his like hands and fingers pretty badly and was bleeding all over the place. And Rhonda was pissed. She kicked him out and made him leave. And he was apparently devastated that here he was like hurt physically and emotionally and came to her and she kicked him out. But it made him just want her even more and he was determined to keep her. He just would not. I imagine as like a super, like you grew up super rich, you are rich yourself, you invented something, you probably have kind of gotten everything you always wanted. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe that's the draw is like, here's somebody I can't have, I must have her. Yeah. And like, I'm sure he was thinking, I gave you all of these things and invested this much. So I bought you. Yeah, exactly. And so this kind of back and forth and tumultuous relationship goes on and on for four years until Rhonda surprises Jimmy with the news that she is expecting their child. So he was thrilled. It made him think that they would just be together then just the two of them like you're yeah. we're having a baby together now it's just us but jimmy's friends of course suspected that she got pregnant just so that she could have more financial ties to him basically they both were in it to keep each other and at this point they actually still weren't married you know so that they needed this baby i guess to tie them together and in 1994 Rhonda gave birth to a baby boy whose name was this is what the article says. Um, James, John James Chandler Jost or Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> 
So pick one of those names because that's what the baby's name was. I guess his name was John James Chandler Jost, and then they just decided to call him Ronnie for short. Um, John James Chandler Jost. His name Ronnie. is my name too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, big shocker, but having the baby did not fix their relationship. What? Because I feel like a baby really mm. just makes things so clear and easy. Usually. In every relationship. Usually. So their relationship remained super volatile. They would fight all the time, and they both accused each other of being abusive. His friends would say that she was abusing him and her friends would say he was abusing her. Just not a good relationship. And Rhonda wanted to be more independent from him. She used his money to start her own headhunter business. So she would tell everybody that she was financially independent and that she was wealthy on her own merit because of this business. So she would always be like, I'm a businesswoman. I do business things, you know, but <laughs> apparently the business didn't make any money. It's very uh, Real Housewives of right. <laughs> New York. <laughs> I don't know what that it's is. Very like, it's very Sonia Morgan. It's very Sonia Morgan. Okay. It's so, so um, it was so Sonia. So it was a very small business and she had a few employees. This is just kind of to speak to her character. One day, one of her employees called in sick because her four-year-old daughter was homesick with a fever. Mm-hmm. And Rhonda totally flipped out and drove to this woman's house and started banging on the windows and screaming at her, like, how dare you call in sick? And wouldn't leave until the police came and made her oh leave. God. Isn't okay. that crazy? Yes. It's just to show you that, you know, her behavior was very odd and, and extreme. And it, yes. it, it is just kept getting worse and worse and worse over time. One day at a party, Jimmy's best friend, Rocky, had a, a family party at his house. You know, it was like one of those daytime parties with all the kids and everything uh-huh. and a pool party. I remember those. I remember, remember those. Remember how fun that was. Daytime with friends. <laughs> Everyone's so, a little tipsy. Yeah. Nobody so, knows where the kids are. Yeah. So Rhonda was drinking heavily and she told Jimmy to go home and take their son home with him. And he's like, okay. So he leaves and takes the son. And then in front of everyone at the party, she starts hitting on Rocky his best friend and asking him just like plain as day in the middle of the party, like, why don't you come into the pool with me and let's, you know, hook up. And he immediately turned her down and she was like, what? Everybody else does it. Rocky asked her to leave the party. And then Rocky, a few days later tells Jimmy what happened. And then it was one of those things where of course, rather than Jimmy confronting Rhonda, he just cut off his friendship to Rocky. And apparently they didn't talk for a year and a half after that. Rocky. I mean, first I know. he has the name and then you know. And he has a really cool cowboy hat. One of those black <laughs> cowboy hats. He's in all the interviews. He's in all of them. <laughs> so by two the year two by the year two thousand <laughs> by the year two thousand they have now been together for ten years of all of this mess and things didn't get better. Um, one night they Man, tried to have exhausting. I know one night they tried to have a romantic stay at Barton Creek country club, just the two of them. And they were both drinking heavily and they got into a fight at dinner because uh, he thought that she was flirting with the waiter. And then he got mad and left and went back up to the room and she stayed at the bar and drank more and then when she went back up to the room they ended up getting into a physical fight and the police were called and both of them had marks all over them 
there was probably both of their faults. Um, but yeah. Jimmy took responsibility and said that it was him and he was sent to jail. He pled no contest to an assault charge and then he was let go. Not only was their relationship physically explosive, but Rhonda started acting really strange. According to her friend, Patty Swenson, who they interview, um, Did she, she have um, a big bow. No, no, she was Dang. pretty chill. She's pretty chill. Patty Swenson, but, oh, um, Patty. she seemed real like, like, re- like a down to earth, regular person, <laughs> but apparently <laughs> she Ron- has no place in my story. <laughs> Sorry. But apparently Rhonda showed her some pictures of candles burning and she told her that she like she was like look at this jimmy's using these candles to worship demons and then she also yeah so Rhonda was losing her mind and Mm -hmm. she also had showed her pictures of duct work in their house and she was trying to convince patty that he was hiding a baby or a young toddler in the duct work what isn't that crazy? Oh, man. Oh, she's so she was a break, clearly huh? she was clearly not well. And then in March of 2003, she was evaluated by a doctor and she was diagnosed as bipolar. But that makes when a her, lot of sense. Yes, and with when all her of, with everything like the promiscuity, the money, the yeah. And when her lab work came back, it also showed that she was using drugs heavily, and she was diagnosed with a cocaine induced psychosis. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it turns out that both Rhonda and Jimmy were both doing drugs together, mostly cocaine. So they were both kind of losing their shit a little bit. Yeah. Or a lot okay. of it. Um, yeah. So they were both at fault. But again, it was like, of course, if you – when they interviewed Jimmy's friends, they're like, Rhonda was nuts. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then if, when they interview Rhonda's friends, they're like, Jimmy was crazy. You know, it was just right. – the two of them together were just not – Good. And so concerned about their the well-being of their son, Rhonda's mom called Child Protective Services. And when they came to interview Rhonda and Jimmy, they were both saying weird things. They both said that their son was the second coming of Christ and that their son could pull the stars out from the sky and weird things like that, which maybe they were just really proud parents. Right. I'm like, are you sure they, I'm those weren't pretty just sure like, I've said those things about yeah. my kids. <laughs> that they were just like kitschy Texas sayings. Yeah, well, you we know could- he's just the second coming of Christ. <laughs> pull the stars from the sky. Sadly, they ended up, well, is it sad? I don't know. They ended up losing custody of their son and their son went to go live with her mother. So Rhonda wants to leave Jimmy, but he wants her to stay. So he tries to do whatever he can to keep her. And after 10 plus years of all of this, he finally proposes to her and gave her like a huge, crazy, expensive diamond. But Rhonda turned him down and was like, I I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be with you. Um, Maybe that's because in the spring of 2004, Jimmy was running out of all of his money. Apparently he uh. was spending like crazy. He was spending between 20 to 30,000 a month and he wasn't making money. It's speculated that maybe that's why Rhonda wanted to be out. Also, Rhonda believes that Jimmy is stalking her and a friend of hers says said that she personally saw Rhonda's door jam broken in and signs that he probably was st- and he probably was stalking her because he was crazy too. Right. You know? And so she was increasingly paranoid and he was totally obsessed with her so with the two together that was just not a good situation. 
And so then in July of 2004, Rhonda goes missing. Weeks go by and nobody has heard a thing from her. Jimmy's friends also said that he was acting very strange and started packing up all of the things in his house. He told his friends that he wasn't, he was like selling away all of his assets. He was tying Mm -hmm. up loose ends and he told his friends that he wouldn't see them for a long time. So now Jimmy is gone and Rhonda is missing. So her friends are worried. So they go by her house in Austin to look for her. And when they get there, they see that the garage door is open and the door inside the garage that leads to the house is open and they smell a horrible smell. Oh, no. Yeah. So they immediately called the police. And when the police went into the house, they went upstairs into a bedroom that was connected to, you know, it was one of those bedrooms where there's a door in the bedroom that goes up to an attic. And okay. um, and inside that bedroom, they found a decomposing body with bullet cases all around. And the body was so badly decomposed that they had to take f- fingerprints to identify the body. And when they did, they found out that the body belonged to Jimmy. <gasps> no. Yeah. Jimmy Jost. There what were a total. Twist. I know. There were a total of 13 gunshot wounds to his chest, abdomen, arms, and his groin areas. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're looking for Rhonda, of course. And when they talk to her friend Patty, the Patty from before, mm-hmm. you know, regular chill Patty. Sensible Patty. Sensible very Patty. Cool Patty. Patty. She told them that a few months ago, she's like, oh, well, I called you guys. Like, I called the police a few months ago because Rhonda had told her that she was going to kill Jimmy. She had this huge plan. She told her, like, I'm going to put on lingerie. I'm going to get him into bed. She said she was going to handcuff him to the bed. And then that's when she was going to cut off his penis and (gasps) set the house on fire. And Patty was like, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and Rhonda was like, mm, I'm gonna. And so <laughs> thanks for your advice, but I'm not. I know. Listening. Um, I'm still gonna do it, Patty. And so Patty <laughs> called the police to tell them about her plan. But when the police went to Rhonda's house, this was before she had disappeared, Rhonda was like, oh my God, I was kidding. I'm I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And they were like, oh, okay. And then so they just left and they forgot about the entire thing. So now, of course, they're like, oh, she probably meant that. Um, (laughs) So they're looking for- Detective skills are telling me. (laughs) Oh, you were serious about that? On July 27th, 2004, they finally found Rhonda at a Kansas rest stop with her son because she had taken her son from her mother. Mm -hmm. She had $9,000 in cash and a gun on her. So when they brought her back to Austin for questioning, she was like, what's the problem, officers? I was just on vacation with my son. I'm so confused. Mm -hmm. And this is all caught on, you can Google it, or maybe we can share a link on our Patreon. But her police interview was pretty off the wall like she was just like i don't i was you have to i was just on vacation with my son and like why did you call me in here and she told them that she was going to nashville for a singing audition and she's like but then i i chickened out and then which was just so strange she said that she chickened out of the audition and so she thinks she's being held on a weapons charge because the police didn't tell her anything about jimmy being found dead because they want her to see what she said but as she starts freely talking about Jimmy. She 
saying that he's crazy and he's a devil worshiper and that she she had to get away from him. That's why she had left. And then she was like, this part was really weird too. When I watched the interview, she was like, oh, here's the thing. Did you know this? That years ago, Jimmy had his mother's head chopped off. Everybody knows that. Yeah, it was just like, again, she's clearly very unwell. But the police just let her keep talking. And an hour into the interview, Rhonda breaks down and confesses. So they're just like, they didn't, they're not even asking her things. <laughs> they're just letting her talk. And then so yeah. she ends up confessing and she says that that right. he had attacked her and she shot him in self-defense. But what they already knew about Rhonda, because they had been out interviewing everybody, was that a month before the murder had taken place, she had been frequenting gun ranges trying uh-huh. to learn how to shoot. And she would ask the instructors very specific questions like, how would you shoot, shoot to kill somebody who is coming out of an attic that's attached to a bedroom? Whose name like, is Jimmy. Yeah. And that's just like exactly how Jimmy was shot, like very specific. They also said that the people at the gun range said that on the day of the murder, the day of the murder, she walked into the gun range wearing like a nice, pretty floral dress. And then she went into the bathroom and changed into what they described as a ninja suit. Okay. And then she went and shot for about a half an hour. And then she changed back into the dress and she left. Also the day of the murder, she rented a 2000 white Ford Taurus. This is kind of confusing, but she leaving it at the car rental place for her to pick up later. She drove another car that she had rented at a different rental place to a friend's house that she parked outside and then left her son with her friend. And then midday, her friend drove her back to the car rental place where she picked up the Ford Taurus and drove it to the gun range where she dressed like a ninja. She bought more Uh ammunition from them. And then she immediately left the gun range and then went to Jimmy's house in uh, Mission Oaks, which is the house in Austin where they found him. It doesn't sound like she just like just randomly decided to go by his house and then he attacked her. You know what I mean? So on July 27th, 2004, she's charged with first degree murder and she tries to plead insanity, but she's declared competent and they go to trial on February 14th, 2006. And prosecutors are claiming that, you know, Jimmy ran out of money and then she didn't have any need for him. So Rhonda killed him so that she could have custody of her son. And then Rhonda told the jury that she had been avoiding Jimmy for months before the killing because he would drink too much and beat her. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that she didn't think Jimmy would be at that house, but he came home, yelled at her, and grabbed her throat. And she said, I shot him. I shot him. I thought he was going to kill me. So, But it's like, why would you be at that house? That makes no sense. And obviously, the jury agreed because after a week-long trial, it took the jury just two hours to find her guilty of his murder. And she was sentenced to 46 years in prison, and she's eligible for parole in 2027. Dang. Yeah. So that's the story of Rhonda and Jimmy Jost. That's a crazy, crazy story. I know. I know. It's really crazy. And um, her mother is raising the son. Yeah. And I did, you know more research about where like the interview with Piers Morgan is with her in prison now. Oh really? Yeah, it's on Netflix. You can watch it. But um she's 
still, you can tell that she's still not all there, but there are people that are fighting for her innocence because of insanity right? or that she should have a lesser degree because she's clearly unwell. And there are people that are talking about all of her medications that she was on caused that kind of psychosis Uh and that that's probably what led her to behave that way. Or I would say maybe the cocaine. Maybe the cocaine. Yeah, sometimes the combination of the two can be real lethal. Yeah. Cocaine and mental illness don't mix. No, no, no. No, they do not. But um, yeah, that's a sad, sad, crazy story. Sad, sad, crazy story. Man, that's like when I was like, man, what would have happened if those two people never met? You know? Yeah. I mean, Um, oof. Oof. Oof is right. All right. Uh, Well, I got got a love story. That's what I got. Okay, then. (laughs) All righty. Are you ready for it? I am ready for it. All right. Okay. So I got my information from an article on a website called Pink News by Ella Braidwood on The Guardian by Lizzie Cernick from an interview with Sunil Gupta by Salim Kidwal for Project Bolo. Okay. So... Sunil Gupta was born in 1953 in New Delhi, but when he was a teenager, his family moved to Montreal. And when he first moved, it was pretty hard for him. He was a teenager. He was a migrant. The environment was so different. In Delhi, he had had friends and a social life. And now he was cooped up in this tiny flat with his family during this really long, cold winter. And it was, you know, winter was completely unfamiliar to him. Yeah. As a brown-skinned gay teenager surrounded by white straight people in Canada, he felt very isolated. Uh, And he spoke English, but he didn't speak French. And so he was also isolated by language. The year after he arrived in Montreal, he says that he became aware of Stonewall because it was um, when they got there, it was 1970. So he started understanding this idea of the struggle, like gay struggle and its history. And he felt like he had an obligation to come out. So he decided to tell his father and his father actually surprised him by being pretty liberal about it, especially as like an ex-military person. Yeah. Um, He did, his dad did suggest that he still get married, just kind of like, Hey, you can get married and then nobody will ever have to know. Uh, Um, But he, but you know, it was also like, this was 1970 and he never suggested that was immoral or wrong, but his mother was devastated and she never got past it. Like, But she didn't shun Sunil. She loved him. But it was more like because she loved him so much, she felt like she had to keep convincing him that he should be straight. And when Sunil enrolled at college in 1971, he felt like the world opened up to him because he said it was a very liberal atmosphere where feminism, sexuality, and race were openly discussed. He found a peer group. He helped form the first gay helpline in Montreal and then joined a gay literary group. But his mother, even though she didn't accept her son's sexuality, she was warm and welcoming to his friends. She like genuinely loved them as people. And she would open her home. She would entertain Sunil's friends and all of his different groups. And in 1975, Sunil graduated from college. And his plan was to move to New York with his then boyfriend, Rudy. And Sunil was going to do an MBA. 
but his heart just wasn't in it. He'd been playing around with photography since he was young, but it became more than a hobby when he moved to Montreal. And when he got to New York, he started going to these MBA classes, but he says he would go to classes, he'd be so bored, and then he would spend all of his time in New York at these groundbreaking art exhibitions. And he thought, he started thinking, what if I just drop the MBA and become a photographer? So Within a year, he had thrown himself full-time into photography. Hell yeah. Yeah. And when Rudy moved to London for a job, Sunil went too. And in his back of his mind, he says that he still thought, okay, well, photography is what I want to be a photographer, but I can't make money doing that. So I'm going to try to find a job as an accountant, but he nobody would hire him. And so he decided to enroll in photography school. So first as an undergrad, and then he got his MFA at the Royal Academy. And he and Rudy were actually together for about 10 years from the time they were 20 to 30. But kind of as you do during those years, you know, that's a huge growing, that's a huge growing up phase, you know, so they both they grew apart emotionally and politically. Sunil became more of an activist, and he started making a career for himself documenting LGBTQ stories and relationships. And Rudy was an accountant. And so they just kind of had different lives. And the two broke up in 1987. Sunil had a few other relationships. One was long lasting, and it was pretty healthy, and they were open. Then they ended up breaking up. And then Sunil met this other man who had recently come out of the closet. And this was in the mid-1990s, and this guy insisted that Sunil take an HIV test. And Sunil says that when he got to London, it was 1977, and still a few years before AIDS kind of hit, you know? And he says Uh that at first, in the early 1980s, AIDS, AIDS seemed like an American problem, and that somehow by being in the UK, he was safe. But then oh. from about 1983 onwards, the virus started to spread pretty quickly among his social circles. And Sunil says the number of deaths started to pile up. The frequency just grew somehow. It became a kind of new normal. And he says it went from this great ignorance to a panic to a kind of stage of acceptance. And then it was a thing. It was just like a th- that you had to have some kind of humor about it. And he says that in the UK, like the, tabloid- the pandemic. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And sometimes you will still cry. The tabloid media fueled this anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and blamed gay lifestyles for being too promiscuous. And then that was the reason for the spread of the virus. And so there was so much backlash against a community that was already marginalized, right? I know, it's horrible. Yeah. So in 1990, Sunil, who was by now already a prominent photographer decided to take a stand against this demonization of gay men. And he did this project. He published a pro-queer book called Ecstatic Antibodies with a lesbian photographer named Tessa Boffin about the portrayal of the AIDS crisis in the UK. So it's somewhat ironic that despite he had all this experience with deaths of friends and his work with the AIDS crisis and publishing this book, that when his partner asked him to get tested in 1995, Sunil had actually never been tested before. And he said that among his peers, there was kind of this general view of there's no point in getting tested because there's nothing you can do about it. Because at the time, there really wasn't. Well, Um, you would also want to not spread it to anybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That would be good to know. Yes, exactly. But this guy was insistent and Sunil knew 
and he says part of him, he knew it was time. And so he went kind of cavalierly and went and got the test and it was positive. Oh, God. And, and he remembers walking outside St. Thomas's Hospital in London and it was a sunny day and he's looking out the River Thames mm-hmm. and he said, it was like I was in my own movie suddenly that made me weep a bit. And I didn't know how to, how to go about telling anyone either. Oh, And he says at first, like when he told his close friends, they all, because of this experience of going through the 80s, they all felt like he did, that he was going to die. Like they were like, you're going to die tomorrow. And then he says, and then I got embarrassed because I realized after a few days, no, I'm not going to die. Not instantly because I'm actually pretty well. And so he went back to the hospital. He was prescribed antiviral medicines. And at first, his life continued pretty much as before. But then in 1999, he got sick and he developed what's called lipohypotrophy. That's probably not how you say it. Lipohypertrophy. And as a result of the drug that he was taking. And he said it was just like a low point. He says, I just stopped everything and just let it all go. He had a really long period of self-induced isolation. So he stopped going to the gym. He stopped meeting up with friends. His work life slid downhill because he just wasn't doing anything. And he says, I was virtually signing on and living in a council flat. It got really pretty low as you can get. But then just as he was at this low, he won a three-year scholarship. And it kind of invigorated him because he decided to use that money to return to India to document HIV there. Wow. And and it revived him. He says, it woke me up. It also saved my bacon. (laughs) It also saved my bacon because it gave me a subject to get really involved with. So Sunil started visiting Delhi regularly for the first time since he was a kid. And in 2004, he created an exhibition called Love and Life documenting HIV in India. And it was huge. Like they did a showing in Delhi and it was got all this press. And it was there that he met this guy and he was like, kind of fell head over heels and he decided to move back to Delhi to be with this guy. But Sunil says as soon as he arrived, the guy no longer was interested. But he decided, I made this big deal about moving back to India, so I'm going to stay. And so he stayed and he continued working. And then as he was working, he got involved in gay rights activism in India. And he was actually there in the courtroom when Section 377, which outlawed all homosexual activity, was repealed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's like, I moved for the wrong reason, but it was being back there was was important. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Yeah. And it was also meant to be because, Jen, in 2009, he attended an HIV event, and that was where he met Charan Singh. And Sunil was attracted to... Tron, the moment he met them as they shared a ride up to the event in an elevator. And Sunil says, I tried to get his attention by asking where the toilets were. It was a common <laughs> chat up line in London. Like apparently that was like a, if you asked another guy like, hey, where are the toilets? It's like, hey, I'm gay. You're gay. Let's Oh, uh, Okay. Got it. But Tron had no idea what the reference meant. And so he was like, I <laughs> don't like- know. Because Charan was born and raised in India. And so in 2009, Charan was a social worker who was living at home with his family. They knew he was gay, but he says that his family really didn't have a concept of men living together as partners because it just wasn't done at that time. Or if it was, it was completely covered up. You know, it was completely Mm -hmm. in secret. So despite the rocky start, Sunil and Charan 
chatted at the event and they ended up exchanging numbers and Sunil invited Tron to his home. And this presented kind of another divide between the two because Tron says he lived in this posh neighborhood alone and I was so nervous. He was a photographer and I knew nothing about art because Tron was just kind of from a simple family. And, you know, there's a very big class divide in India. And so it was kind of weird for him to be going to this like kind of rich photographer's house. Um, And after the first meeting, they began to date casually. They started, you know, they would go to restaurants. They would go to, it says they go to juice bars. And Tehran says, I couldn't afford to go to the same places as Sunil. So we compromised a bit. And Sunil said he was attracted to Tehran's good nature. He said he was very sexy, but also very honest and good. I just found him very easy to be around. And Tehran says that they were both curious about each other's lives. He said, he had this completely different life as a gay man in the West, and it was fascinating. And Tron's career as a social worker also made him very understanding of Sunil's HIV status. He said, as a social worker, I had lots of experience working with people with HIV. Lots of my friends were positive too. So it just never was a barrier for the two of them. And oh, the two, good. like, over their life, they just, they fell in love and they decided that they wanted to get married. But, you know, despite kind of the movement forward in India, same-sex marriage was still illegal. And they just couldn't even do simple things like getting a lease together. They knew if one of them got sick, the other couldn't visit in the hospital. Mm. But then in 2011, Sunil was invited to Toronto to work on a photography project. And Tron knew that he wouldn't be able to get a visa to go with him. So the galleries that Sunil was working with formally invited Tron so that he could get a work visa as part of the project. And then once in Toronto, they were able to get married. Oh, yay! Yeah. And then after the wedding, Tron applied for a UK spouse visa because Sunil was a, a UK citizen by this time. So that would mean that they could live together as a married couple in England. And Tron says, when I was applying, I explained I was married and they kept asking my wife's name. I told them about Sunil and I think they thought my English was bad. The man on the desk was in shock when he finally realized I was married to a man. But the two moved back to London in 2012. And Tron, who, you know, had not didn't really know much of the art world before Sunil, was inspired by Sunil's work. And he decided to study photography as well. And so he got an MA in photography and the couple started working on projects together. And together, yeah, together they've had exhibitions all over the world, including the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston, Sepia Eye in New York, and the Tate in London, which is actually one of my favorite. I love the Tate. Yes, it's my favorite. Favorite museum too. And in 2016, the two published a book called Delhi Communities of Belonging about India's emerging LGBTQ community. And ultimately, they believe that it's their differences and their shared passions that have kept them together for so long. They say, we challenge each other every day and we compliment and learn from each other. And Sunil says, what started as something not very promising due to our different backgrounds became so much more. I'm so glad we gave it the time. Aww. And that's it. That's my story of Tron and Sunil. Oh, I love that. And their love. I love their love. (laughs) No, I I love that. I think I love that story. I can't wait to see some of their work. Yeah, they're really talented. I mean, Sunil, he's been taking pictures of the gay scene in every city that he's been in. Like 
in New York in the 70s and Montreal and then in India and London. And it's really interesting and cool. And they're obviously both very talented and, and they're really cute together. So, uh, so yes, I will share some awesome pictures on our Instagram. Nice. Love it. Love it. Yeah, it's a good story. Are you ready to do something dumb and something we love? Sure, yeah. Let's do it. I guess I will start. <laughs> I'll start something dumb. I guess I've I've already kind of touched on this on previous episodes. Juggling trying to work and homeschool was uh, very difficult. I can't. Was, I can't even yeah. imagine. Yeah. It's just like – we can't all have a computer. We're not crazy rich. All four of us can't have computers. Right. But they both need to have computers usually at the same time. Zach and I need to work. So it's just been this like crazy – like today I was like, I have to record at this time because my kids need the computer at this time and this time. It, it's just it's maddening. It's but, a lot. It's like a maze. Yes. No, not but, a maze. A puzzle. A puzzle, a a puzzle, puzzle. maze. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the something that I love is that today is their last day of school. And as soon as we are done recording, the kids have just one last Zoom hurrah send off with their uh, classmates nice. to end the school year. And then, and then I guess we just figure out summer. I guess we just <laughs> figure it out. Figure out summer, but all you know is that it does not involve having to be their teacher uh, yes, <laughs> or facilitate I don't have to- their learning. Yes, or manage their Zoom meetings and calls. Right, I know. Like it's their secretary, enough, we have enough. Uh, we have a hard enough time like managing our own meetings. I can't imagine putting Max in there too and trying to. We just like we gave up. You know, his little Zoom meetings with his preschool. We were like, yeah, that's not happening he hates it he won't do it so we're not we're not. yeah we're just not <laughs> we're not what about you well I think um my dumb thing oh, man it's gonna be like the same I feel like as I've said before as well is just look listen we've talked about the curse on this podcast before I just want you to know that I'm not saying that the pandemic happened because I mentioned that I was gonna be going to Yellowstone later in the year <laughs> But I'm just saying I'm now not going to Yellowstone. <laughs> I know. It sucks. <laughs> it does suck. You know, it's just the, yeah, the canceling of plans and needing something to look forward to. But I think the thing that I love is just Ben and and I have been having a lot of just talks about like how, okay, how do we make this work and how do we find something that we can look forward to? And I'm not going to say what it is, but we are making plans. And yeah, um, they're responsible just so everybody knows they're responsible, but just socially distant, responsible plans. We're very good citizens, but yeah, but it's, it's good to be like, I'm just like, I need something to look forward to. And Ben's like me too. Let's figure it out. And, and that's been just really nice, really nice to have something to dream about. That's awesome. All I dream about every day is dinner and then drinks. That's what I look forward to every day. I'm like, what's for I dinner? I know. It's like I in the morning, I'm dinner? like excited for my first cup of coffee. <laughs> and then, yeah, I'm like, when is my day done that I can have I a beer know. and go lay on my hammock? Ugh, yeah. Oh, God. Hammock time is the best time. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that the next time we come back here, it's going to be our 50th episode, you guys? 
It's amazing. No, I'm really proud of us. And I'm thank you guys so much for listening because we couldn't get have gotten to 50 without you. We'll we'll celebrate next episode. We just keep getting more and more downloads, more people listening, more people following. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for liking us. We hope that we're everything you want us to be. Yeah. And thank you. I mean, I we know that we can see kind of the increase in listens and like it feels good because it means that you guys are telling your friends about us because that's the only way that we grow. And it just is, it's so nice that people will spend their time with us. And that's awesome yeah. because we love doing this and we're glad that you guys hopefully like it too. Man, thanks guys for another great week and we'll see you again next week. But in the meantime, stay home and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, dum-dum-da-dum, dum-da-dum-da-dum, dum-da-dum.